Hear the word of our Lord from the book of Jeremiah, the third chapter, beginning in the sixth verse. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Somebody asked me to do another hope for the remnant type of uh, recording here. One of the uh, one of the second times that I've done this, addressing the state of the body of Christ on earth and discussing, well, the bad and the good, looking for something of a silver lining. But whenever I get asked to do this sort of thing, you got to keep in mind, we have to figure out where we are. Is there anything, biblically speaking, that is the closest analog to our current situation? And, well, there is. The closest analog to where we are today in the Old Testament is in Judah just before the exile. Let me explain. In the history of Israel, uh, in the Old Testament Israel, you have a, a very clear historical witness to their relationship with God. I don't think any other country in the history of the world, when it comes to ancient history anyway, has this much religious history in it. So what happens? God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. And for 40 years of wandering in the desert, they're, well, learning to believe in God. They, they rebelled against God over and over and over again. They had this massive hangover from the pagan ways around them when they were slaves in Egypt. And for 40 years, God disciplined them and taught them, here's how you do relationship with God. Then they enter into the promised land under the conquest of Canaan. This is the leadership of Joshua conquering the peoples there, kicking out or slaying most of them so that the children of Israel could settle in the promised land. Now, after Joshua passes away, though, the children of Israel are given a choice. Do we stay faithful to the covenant God gave us or do we 
rebel against him. Now, we're going to turn here to the last chapter of the book of Joshua here. And we're going to notice something that Joshua says pretty darn plainly. He has their number, right? So Joshua writes, he, he puts this big charge in front of the leaders of Israel, right? And let's see here. Chapter 24 of Joshua, beginning in the first verse, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea, and when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served, beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. I pay special attention to this next verse here. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, 
No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So in the midst of the religious history of Israel here, after the Exodus and after the conquest of Canaan, what does Joshua tell the people? Okay, choose. And they go, oh yeah, we choose God. This sounds great. And then Joshua tells them plainly, no, you're going to fail. You can't do this. Now, instead of saying, oh my goodness, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, what do the children of Israel respond with? They respond, but yeah, we can, we got this. And so, let's, um, let's take a look <laughs> at whether or not they actually could do that. So, we look here at Judges chapter 2, shortly after the death of, um, after the death of Joshua here. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Hmm. Well. So how's that for a spectacular failure? The, the very generation, just a little short while after telling uh, the Joshua, the prophet, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll serve God. And then next thing you know, they're, they're worshiping the balls. They're worshiping false gods. And this from chapter 2 in that part is part of a summary of the book of Judges. But at the end of the day, well, they failed. So, question though. Is that the closest analog to where we as a church, as the body of Christ, are today? No, it is not. However, maybe we feel some, maybe we feel because the Old Testament was written for our edification and the Old Testament histories were written as examples to us, maybe we can see that, yeah, there's, there's some common threads there. Uh, the book of Judges tells us in those days there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own sight. And in the face of moral anarchy, what man can stand? Yeah, so we can relate to that. And we can absolutely see the religious landscape around us 
being like this but the problem is is that in places in the west there are institutions there are churches that are institutions that actually have real power and authority over their people at the at the very least as the power of the keys is concerned and the right to expel people for various things or prop up various teachers as uh well the next big thing and that wasn't really around during the book of judges the priesthood was trying at Shiloh. They were absolutely trying. But um, by the time we get to 1 Samuel, uh, the priesthood is in shambles. And it's made even worse when the Philistines take away the ark and um, Eli, the, the high priest, dies and everything as well as his children. So what happens after that, though? So the children of Israel, they go through the period of Judges and it's plain as day that something needs to change so they get king saul and by all means on my most controversial bible take you can learn all about what i think about king saul and a um, samuel the prophet but more important is after that you get king david the davidic king the closest any human being has ever gotten to being the Messiah that was not named Jesus the Christ. David is such a, an impactful figure that it is said in the book of Revelation that Jesus holds the keys of David. Of David. There's even a, a gematria aspect to Matthew chapter 1 where in that genealogy, if you decode it in a gematric fashion, it goes... David, David, David. David is a big deal. That's considered the golden age of Israel when King David is ruler over all of Israel. Why? Well, because he brought them security. He brought them secure borders. He purified their religious life. He boosted and organized the priesthood so that church actually mattered again. And then he also funded everything uh, through his conquests to actually get a temple arranged. Obviously, yes, his son Solomon being the one to build it, but David. David is considered the standard in the Old Testament. We see that with the book of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. It's David is the hero. But do we have a David today? Does any church have a David? I can point to times in the church's life when there was men when there were men who were a lot like David. We think of Constantine oftentimes that way because he took the church from a denigrated, lowly, ugly position as a small and persecuted body and then he lifts it up and turns it into a respected, honored institution that glorifies God throughout all of the Roman Empire. Constantine is very very similar to king david in that respect there's other times when we have these kinds of people too that bring the church where she ought to be and they are always remembered as wonderful saints with their detractors sure and with warts and all in their biographies we all know about david's adultery and murder that he committed yes but david still the standard we're not there we're not there right now, are we? Now, I'm sure somebody's like, well, yeah, yeah, we do. There's this one theologian I really, really like. And no, no, they're not. There's, there is no David figure right now that God has sent 
to purify his church and bring it back. And there might also be, by the way, some Bible scholar listening to me speak going, uh, how dare you, this is terrible exegesis, trying to draw a clear line between Israel of the Old Testament and the church in their circumstances? That's just silly, that's terrible exegesis. Not so fast. Let's read on how the Bible teaches us to look at the Old Testament. Here's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, as 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. When we look at the Old Testament, there is absolutely a sense where even the histories are there for our instructions, where we look at where were they at, what did the good people do? What did the bad people do? Let's be like the good people that followed God and avoid being like the bad people that did not follow God. So when I'm looking at these parallels or finding, is, did anybody in the Old Testament serve as an example for us in where we are right now in the church? Does any of it work? Does any of it just fit enough for me to say, yes, this is what most closely applies for our example, for our edification, for our instruction. And if we had a David, all, I could, all I'd have to tell you for encouragement for the remnant is enjoy the ride. Follow this dude. He's doing great. So there you go. Just follow this guy. This is awesome. Let it be. Everything's fine. I can't tell you that. Every, Lord knows I can't tell you that. I can't be that guy to say that. We're not okay and we know it. But moving back to the Old Testament religious history of the nation of Israel, what happens after David dies? Solomon becomes king. And Solomon, imbued with wisdom from on high, follows his father's instructions and he goes ahead and builds the temple. The temple. Where God himself accepts it. And for a while, everything is going great. And then it turned out that Solomon just dropped the ball and screwed Israel up for a very, very, very long time by introducing idolatry into Israel. And yes, he also uh, bankrupted the country in a manner of speaking. Um, and he let a whole lot of foreigners in. But Solomon, through his marriages, permitted idolatry. And he built other temples to other gods. Thus, uh, sealing the fate of much of Israel from there. Well, 
Solomon was kind of like his father David at first. And we, we do commend his soul to the mercies of our Lord because he wrote Ecclesiastes as a letter of something of repentance. But after Solomon, his son Rehoboam comes in, and his son Rehoboam is not wise like his father Solomon. And his son Rehoboam listens to his, uh, his dumb little friends and threatens the children of Israel with greater taxes and an even harder life than Solomon had brought them because Solomon had very, very big taxes. He used a lot of forced labor, etc., etc., etc. And, um, well, the children of Israel to the north uh, said, smell you later. Bye. So they took their ten tribes, went under the leadership of King Jeroboam, and then Judah. Judah is... That territory was all that was left to King Rehoboam. And now we're getting somewhere. See, you can't forget that you are united to Christ in your baptism. When, when Roman Catholics say that Mary is your mother, uh, the mother of the church, strictly speaking, in a, in a fashion, they are correct. Because you are united to Jesus, and that is a real union. Who his mother is, is your mother. But that also means that... Um, who our Lord Jesus is, that applies to you. And that means that you, too, are in a spiritual sense, by your baptism, in a sacramental sense, you do belong to the royal Davidic line. And that leads us to an uncomfortable conclusion when we get to uh, King David and a certain pronouncement brought against him in the book of Second Samuel. <laughs> So let's go to 2 Samuel here, and we're going to find when Nathan the prophet confronts him. And we are going to notice a very, very, very similar pattern. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in the 7th verse. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Um, by the way, this curse still applies. When he says, the sword shall never depart from your house, that sword of conflict, that still does apply to the actual body here on earth. Now, in your baptism, you are part of the royal line of David. You are part of the house of David. This aspect of this curse applies to every single Christian. This is why... In the book of Revelation, when St. John says there will be no more curse, that is some of the best news we've ever heard in our lives. Absolutely, there's the curse in Eden that we're all aware of. But there's also the curse here. That the sword does not depart from the house of David. And if in your baptism, you truly do belong to the real house of David. 
not the people who are, well, part of the synagogue of Satan. No, they, they were broken off. They were broken off from Israel. St. Paul says that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And you're grafted in. Welcome to the house of David. And unfortunately, this kind of conflict, this kind of splitting up, this kind of argumentation is something that will persist. When people ask, why did the Great Schism happen? Why did the, the Great Reformation happen? It is for this reason. This is at one of the core reasons for it is we're part of the house of David and the sword shall never depart from it until God comes and removes that, uh, that pronouncement against them. So Jeroboam takes northern Israel and what does he do? In order to maintain his power, because they did not have a temple in northern Israel, and he was worried that the people would go back to Judah, to the house of David, because of, um, well, because of the temple being so central to religious life, he builds two extra temples in the northern kingdom of Israel, puts golden calves in them, and says, Hey, these are your gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Go ahead and worship them. Oh, no. Now there's a syncretistic worship going on in the body on earth. And they adopted the, uh, the pagan morality, the pagan worldview, while still claiming to worship the, the true God. And by all means, that is what led to Israel's downfall as syncretism. Letting the world have that foot in the door to modify your religion, to modify your faith... That was something that, well, everybody saw in the Old Testament condemned. But they kept doing it. And the prophets, like Elijah, would speak out against these things, especially as Jezebel began to introduce hard pagan idolatry. And the people still just went along with whatever the strongest horse at the time was saying. Does that remind you of anybody or of anything? Well, when we look at apostate churches or um, hyper-liberal churches today who fly flags that God would never want us to fly, who are out there proclaiming a different gospel, who are out there ordaining people who do not even believe that Jesus rose from the dead, we're in trouble. We see an element of northern Israel's syncretistic worship when we see things like that Episcopalian church that had a druidic mass or whatever. Um, I think that happened in England and in California. These druids coming in to run a church service at a Christian church. We've seen this with um, people out there that are preaching well, CRT from the pulpit. They're not preaching the word of God. But while we could say that, oh man... We're, this is just like the days of the split between northern Israel and southern Judah. Boy, howdy, that's exactly where we're at. No, 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 no. See, southern Judah, for a while, was the more faithful of the two kingdoms. And you had the, the tribes that were in there, Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, Levi. I believe Reuben was there too. And you have these southern tribes that more or less tried their best to stay faithful to God for a while. Were they perfect? No. Especially now once we get to the uh, time of Ahaz. Or when we get to men like Manasseh who, using their authority, decide to start trying to ape northern Israel and do what northern Israel does. And it is certainly an evil thing. 
But for a while, Judah, had, Judah was the kingdom that had some kings that were good, that had some people who were faithful. I don't think that's us. There are good Christian denominations in the West that really are trying to follow the Lord with their whole hearts, at least on the surface. But we cannot say that it is good guy versus bad guy. Our opening text here from the book of Jeremiah was written during the days of King Josiah, who was one of the good and righteous kings of Judah. He was absolutely one of those kings that we, um, that we ought to emulate. But in Jeremiah 3, the Lord said to me, In the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, the northern kingdom, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister, Judah saw it. Oh no. God says, this was the sister that flat outright just abandoned me. So I divorced her. But Judah isn't listening either. Judah sees this and Judah is without excuse. There was a time for a while, here in America at least, where you could say, here are the denominations and the church bodies in the United States that are trying to be faithful, and here are the ones that are not. Here are the, the denominations that are serving our God, here are the ones that are not. And we are not in that situation right now. I'll explain in a bit. But to highlight it now, one of Jeremiah's contemporaries, Ezekiel, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 8 here. And we're going to look at what's going on in the southern kingdom. The good guys. <laughs> Just before the exile. You are here, by the way. Abominations in the temple. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. And then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy? And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will still see greater abominations. Verse 7, And he brought me to the entrance of the court. When I looked, Behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see there the vile abominations that they are committing here. 
So I went in and saw, and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up, and he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And they said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. Tammuz, by the way, being a false god from Babylon. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You are here. We get emails from people saying to us, every church in my town has a rainbow flag. Every church in my town, I, I try going on Sundays and I never hear the gospel. Every church in my town is unified in this and there's nothing I can do. There's nowhere I can go. You are here. And for those places where you should be able to find a good conservative church, it feels like they're so few and far between. Because even the good conservative churches that they're looking at seem like there's some sort of uh, change going on. That in our Father's house, what do we see? Oh, well, time for us to start teaching in our denomination about X, Y, and Z thing about power and prejudice or this or that or privilege this or how we need to have radical inclusion that we need to read the works of Gerhard Ferda we need to reject the third use of the law we need to be in dialogue with groups that uh, we should have absolutely no dialogue with and we find ourselves in a place right now where people are regularly messaging me asking where do I go what do I do and it feels like for somebody that wants to be a faithful Christian you have to move to a whole different town to find a faithful Christian church. You are here. Now during the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there were faithful believers that were not engaged in the same kind of idolatry. And there were faithful priests who were not engaged in the same kind of idolatry that we see with all the, the actual high priesthood and with the leadership in Judah. But institutionally, it was getting harder and harder to trust anybody with what they said. This is one of the reasons why Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet, because his job was to speak to people that weren't going to listen, because they were not actually 
believers, even if they were part of the religious institution that should have been considered the good guys. And whenever somebody went up to these people who should be the good guys, while well, we read from Jeremiah 37 and 38, that, well, their response to your message is often throwing you into a cistern or throwing you in jail. It's bad. But this is a hope for the remnant type of, uh, type of situation here. And we have to ask, what happens after this? If this is the closest analog to what, what we're doing here, well, let's read from Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah 52, beginning in the first verse, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother name, the mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libanah, not the prophet, a different Jeremiah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, things came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between two walls by the king's garden, while the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people, and the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, also the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins. And the pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea, and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these things was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of the one pillar was eighteen cubits, its circumference was twelve cubits, and its thickness was four fingers, and it was hollow. On it was a capital of bronze. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and network and pomegranates, all the bronze 
or around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates were 100 upon the network all around. And the captain of the guard took Sariah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold, and from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men at war and seven men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the hand of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the twenty-third year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, Avil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily need until the day of his death, as long as he lived. There is wrath. I think we can all feel it. I think we can absolutely all feel everything that is going to happen. It's, it's a palpable sense in this country. This country that is built on a system of child sacrifice that our foundational activities are usury, sodomy, and abortion. We know that this country is going to be judged, but the faithlessness of many, if not most, of our religious leaders is also going to be judged. We're in for it. This is, this is where you are right now. You are here. And if you have a good congregation, if you have a good church, with a good pastor... Hold on to that guy. <laughs> but otherwise, if there's nothing like that in your town, there's nothing wrong if you decide that you need a house church, a house Bible study. To have nothing to do with supporting groups that are going to be under judgment. And if we, if we think, well, sir, uh, you know, this doesn't work because we're in the new covenant era, I double-dog dare you to read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. If we turn to the book of Revelation, we look and we see how our Lord Jesus feels about faithless churches. What does he say to those churches who have some serious problems? Well, to Ephesus, he says, in uh, Revelation 2, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Meaning you are no longer, if Jesus removes that lampstand, you're no longer a church of Jesus Christ. You may claim you are, but you are not. Now, what does he say here to Pergamum? 
Pergamum here having, um, he says, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says he will declare war on faithless churches, on faithless Christians. What does he say to Thyatira here? I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Therefore, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He goes on to the rest of the seven churches, and most of them receive similar warnings. For crying out loud, we look at Sardis here. And what is Sardis here? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Very, very, very similar to the situation the children of Judah were in. Well, they had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had everything to, to make it look like they were great, faithful believers. But Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, dear Sardis, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Against you. To the church in Laodicea, he says, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen in self to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Refined by fire. But at the same rate, we are in a little bit different of a time because our Lord Jesus does promise reward to he who conquers. Notably that we who are faithful unto death even will find ourselves secure, having eternal life in Jesus Christ, having a great and amazing communion with our Lord Jesus. If you want encouragement for the remnant, remember the eternal perspective, heaven on the other side. But in a temporal sense, we are persecuted, we are attacked. This is going to happen to everybody that wants to be faithful to the Lord. Nobody should be surprised. Nobody should go around crying about it. This is something that simply happens. That's okay. There is wrath for the people out there who abandon our God. There is wrath for those who decide to do syncretism, as we saw with northern Israel, which syncretism often just ends up sliding into full idolatry and in the West, where we are 
indoctrinated into greed and evil everywhere. My goodness, it is absolutely everywhere. It's no surprise that that should touch the churches. We live in a syncretistic society that wants that to happen to you, that wants you to be that thing. But if you say no, if you have to do a house church, you have to do a house church. If you just need to, to get with some friends and do church that way and lay your hands on somebody and say, okay, you're the guy for communion. I don't see much of a reason why you couldn't do that. It's an extreme position, but if there's no churches in your area that are even close to faithful, maybe that's all you can do. But at the moment, we await wrath. And we ask that God will deliver us from it. We ask that he will lead our churches to repentance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're in a situation right now where people are asking me, where's the hope? Where's the silver lining? Where's the, the good stuff that comes out of this? And I will say that it's hard to see that. And it's really hard to see that given the times that we live in, in the uh, Jeroboam-like syncretism of the worldly morality around us. But, oh Heavenly Father, we know that you are holy, that you are just, that you are our God, and we worship you. We pray then for help. We pray for protection. We ask, O oh Heavenly God, that no matter what happens, may we be found faithful. Please put us in the ranks of those who conquer. And please spare us, dear God, from the excesses of wrath, the grapes being tread down, that we understand we deserve, but by the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have, uh, that we may be spared of it. We do pray, though, for your holy church, for those who are in the middle of their lampstands being removed, I pray, dear God, that they will repent and that you will restore them to godliness, to a full measure of the Holy Spirit for the proclamation of your word and of your gospel for the salvation of souls. May we no longer be like Judah in just before the exile. Instead, O oh Lord, may we be well like the Davidic kingdom faithful and standing strong, standing tall in the midst of these kinds of attacks, in the midst of everything, dear God, that the devil and his minions want for this country, for this people, for everything going on here. Please protect us, O Lord, and help us to glorify you no matter what. We praise you, dear God, and we thank you for this. Send us our David. O Lord Jesus Christ, come back quickly. We thank you, Lord, and we love you very much. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen and amen.